Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crypto Hipsters Podcast, where I interview founders and co-founders, entrepreneurs and artists, executives and stay-at-home hipsters in crypto and blockchain around the world. And I have an amazing podcast for you today. Let's get to it. And today I have an amazing guest. Um, he is the chief evangelist of the Siena Network. And he is also an interviewer of very famous people. Uh, his name is Monty Munford. Welcome, Monty, to the show. Thank you very much, sir. It's a pleasure to be involved. Awesome. So uh, let's let's get to it. Let's kick things off. Um, what is your background, and um, is it a logical background for what you do now? <laughs> no, it's not a logical background. Um, I was basically a bum for about 20 years. Didn't go to university, University of Life. Went on a kibbutz at the age of 21. Uh, I wasn't Jewish. I still am not Jewish. Uh, and just fell in love with traveling. You know what I mean? And it's funny. Um, uh, so I was probably on the road for about, I was on the road for about, I had a gap 20 years. Like most people had a gap year. Uh, and then I'd come back to the UK when I ran out of money and jump on a motorbike and uh, a, a dispatch rider, as opposed to a courier, which was for the straight people. Dispatch riders, was, it was a phrase that came from the, from the war for motorcyclists, uh, motorcyclists in the war. Uh, and pretty much in those days, it was outlaw years, no cameras, uh, ongoing battles with the police, uh, both politically and on motorbikes, because they didn't like us because we went too fast. Um, but I'd, I'd save up about a £1,000. Uh, then I'd just hit the road again. You, you know what I mean? I mean, And that just went on and on and on and on. Uh, and I was talking to my son last night, actually. We were watching the Bureau which is a, a French version of Homeland. It's absolutely brilliant. The fifth series, uh, and now they've shifted the uh, the locus or the focus uh, geographically to uh, to the Sinai Desert, which is now basically a hotbed for militants. Um, but when I went there in '83, uh, just after the Israelis had moved out in '82, uh, the place was just completely empty. You know, the Sinai Peninsula was just bedouin. Bedouin and camels, uh, and we lived in palm huts um, and went swimming in the sea and saw amazing fish and learned to speak Arabic and did all types of stuff. I probably went there about 15 times. I lived there for four months in 87 in a place called Dahab, which is Arabic for gold. And I don't know if it's gold anymore, um, but I'm thinking of going back in January just to go there as a journalist and be curious to see what's happened and if there are militants everywhere. and hopefully use my Arabic to get out of trouble. Uh, so that is basically the first 20 years. And then I came back, I got done for drink driving on my bike, just over the limit, uh, moved down to Brighton, which is like 50 miles south of London. Uh, there was a bit of an exodus going on at that time with like alternative people. Um, we had the only green MP in the country, by the way, surrounded by a, by a wall of uh, Tory blue. So it is a different type of town and that kind of, you know, Venice Beach type of way. Uh, and I retrained as a journalist. I went around the book. I went, I'd gone around the world in 94 to write a book with a Mont Blanc pen 
because uh, I wanted to write a book, not type a book. Uh, and from that point, it was pretty weird. You know, I had a lot of catching up to do. You know, I wasn't university educated. I did a three-month course at the London College of Printing uh, where they crammed two years of postgraduate uh, quality work uh, into three months. So I did that. I loved the pressure. You know, I got an internship uh, at an IT publication just as the internet was kicking in, that would be 98. Um, and pretty much the internet was my godsend. You know what I mean? It was the, it was a thing that no one really knew about, and I, I didn't know about anything else, really, especially media. Uh, and then it just went on. I was the, the first director of communications of Victoria Real, which was uh, a Brighton company that uh, streamed the first Big Brother, uh, well, you know, conducted the first Big Brother stream uh, on the website, so that was pretty extraordinary. Then I moved into games, uh, had a few successes, a couple of failures. Uh, lived in India 2008-2010 as the financial crash hit to get out of Dodge with my now ex-wife and five-year-old son. Uh, became a Bollywood film star, believe it or not. I uh, was in two movies as a villain. Came back in 2010, relaunched my life as a tech journalist, you know, recovering from the days, you know, from the early days when I moved into my com sector. Uh, and then kind of somehow managed to get into crypto. And that's where I am now as the evangelist for the CNN network. It's, it's like, I know it's a bit long-winded, but it's actually much more long-winded than that. So I've tried to give you the short version. So your background is awesome. It's a it's a great story. Um, I have not as big of a story, but a crazy story <laughs> too. Um, but you know, and we'll get into the Bollywood thing because I've always had an interest in Bollywood. We'll get that into it a little bit later. Um, you know, first the question I have, a big one is is you know. You have quite the knack for meeting and interviewing famous uh, celebrities. Uh, if I go to your LinkedIn site, I see pictures with Kim Kardashian um, and you know some others. And, and how did that how did that come about? Kim Kardashian was weird, actually. Um, I was in Ethiopia in 2010 at the end of my uh, Indian travels. I said to my ex-wife, that, well, my wife at the time, uh, you know, I've, I've supported the family for two two years. Uh, we're going back to the UK with more money than we, you know, left with, which was always a good thing. I fancy going to watch England play Germany in the World Cup uh, in uh, South Africa. And and it's very cheap to fly from India to East Africa. And I thought, well, I can meet a mate in Addis Ababa. Uh, and then we could go down, you know, we spend a couple of days in Ethiopia. I'd always wanted to go to Haile Selassie's tomb and, you know, things like that. Uh, and so that was the plan, uh, and that's what happened. And I got very sick on set uh, as I left Mumbai. So when I arrived in Ethiopia, I was, well, let's just say it was coming from both ends, right? Uh, sick for three days, did what you normally do when you get to a new country, is go to the port or the train station to find out what's going on. Went to the train station, three games of football a day, Gradually got better, walked past the National Theatre of Ethiopia, uh, met an African-American girl, amazing, Ethiopian-American, uh, told her that I'd just been filming in Bollywood. Would I like to meet the president of Ethiopia the next day? And would I like to uh, meet the director and uh, Somalian model who was responsible for a, a, film, a film about, is it GGSM? Uh, uh, you know, female 
female uh, gen genitalia mutilation. And I said, of course I do. That's amazing because that's the way life was at the time. And I went to the RAS Hotel, which is the best hotel in Addis, $20 a night, amazing circular bar, you know, all types of extraordinary people. And I met these two travel journalists and they said, "What you you come to Ethiopia and you're going to go down to watch a football match, you idiot. Take the guidebook. I said, I don't do guidebooks, man. You know, I mean, they, they got my number quite quickly because I said I'd invite them to this premiere. And, and we all did go. Uh, and then I read the book and I thought, Jesus Christ, this place is amazing. And I found this place called Somaliland, which is a, a non-recognized country between Ethiopia and Somalia. Uh, and you could go through there and get to, uh, you know, you get to a port called Berbera uh, and then get a boat to Yemen going by the Skokortra Islands, which are basically like the Gal Galapagos. You know, they don't get so much publicity because it's in Arabia and the Gulf of Aden. Uh, and I did that, although I didn't get on the cattle boat to Yemen because I had, kid, I had a kid and it was a bit too dangerous. Uh, and I was speaking to someone yesterday, we have a plan to go to Yemen in the next six months. Is a high-ranking Russian diplomat, but is also a very good friend of mine. Uh, and so it turned out that those two people who um, gave me amazing advice. Uh, I came back to London, went for a drink with them, became friends, uh, especially with a guy. Uh, and he was a you know, professional broadcaster, professional travel writer, and, and did loads of conferences. And then said, listen, I can't do this conference in Armenia. It's quite well paid, three days. Why don't you, uh, why don't you go and do it? I said, well, that's amazing, man. Do you know what I mean? What's the price? He said, well, I don't know. You know you, you'd have to talk to them. But I'd never been to Armenia, and I thought, why not? And I spoke to this guy, seemed quite impressed by my background, strangely, um, and then said, uh, well, let's talk money first. And he said uh, a rate, a daily rate, which I thought was for the whole three days. I'd never earned so much. And I said, well, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to do it. Uh, and he said, well, you know, you can do Kim as well. I said, well, what do you mean, Kim? He then actually did check the website. Uh, and Kim Kardashian is a half Armenian female billionaire entrepreneur. So she was the keynote. So uh, that's how it came about. Uh, she was very, she was extraordinarily charming, very present. A security detail was bigger than the president's when we uh, when we finally arrived in uh, uh, Armenia, uh, and I would say it's a fair bet she'll run for president in the next ten years. Wow! Awesome, awesome, awesome. So, um, before I, I'm amazed by your traveling. You know, um, so I got to ask a question with the traveling. You know. A lot of people think traveling is an exotic, awesome, you know, comfortable experience, right? And I backpacked across Asia, um, and I know that it's not, right? So what lessons did you learn that some of the key lessons that you learned while you were traveling that helps you with building, you know, um, your, your business and, your, and your, your company, your leadership today? That's a fantastic question. Um because I thought I'd wasted 20 years of my life. You know what I mean? Like all of these kind of street experiences or, learn, you know, th th there's a lot of stuff I can't tell you um, where I crossed the line a couple of times, but that was only for survival's sake. Uh, and in those experiences, I learned about danger and I learned about, I, I would imagine, negotiation as well as lots of other things. 
but put it all together, you know, I thought these these were lost arts. You know, I'm working in an office as a you know trainee sub editor for Computing Magazine. You know, and I'm I'm with people that really would have no idea how to live on the road. You know, you know what it's like pack, backpacking. You stay in hovels, you get into scrapes. You know, all these things make you. You know, so I don't think I wasted 20 years at all. I think I looked around and just thought, you know, you're actually, you've been in the job 10 years and you're actually quite useless when it comes to the facts of life. And actually, you're actually quite useless in very basic skills, you know, such as the ones I mentioned, negotiation and all that type of thing. Um, so it, it wasn't very difficult for me to kind of shuffle up the greasy pole, you know, from a nobody, you know, a 38-year-old kid basically, up to uh, a pretty extraordinary, well, in my opinion, a, a pretty extraordinary career in the last 20 years or so. Um, and I think it was all of those things that I did at travelling. I think, as I said, the, the slightly more dodgy elements were probably stronger, you know, teachers than the everyday stuff. But, I mean, I mean I'd mean, i throw the question back at you. You must have learned a lot yourself travelling, right? I, I did. Um, and I was in 2004 and when I came back home, um, I interviewed for, for jobs and people wouldn't touch me except, um, I interviewed at AIG and I told them about my travel experiences and they're like, we're in, we're a global company. We like that kind of thing. So then I got employed. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I was a nomad before I was a digital nomad, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I saw things in the eighties or the very early eighties places that you can't travel to anymore. The Sinai would be a case in point, um, you, you know, where, which is now overrun by militants and it used to be a haven in 1983, a year after the Israelis had moved out. It was like a peninsula with no one in it except Bedouin and camels. You know, so I'm really thankful for the travel that I did in the years that I did it. I went around the world in 1994 uh, from Perth in Australia and ended up at Berkeley in, in California. Uh, with a Mont Blanc pen, writing a book. I wrote a book with a pen in 1994. You know, you can't do that now. I mean, I, I'm I'm so inured to the laptop that you know I probably can't travel without one really. Although I do read books all the time, and I have you know space away from from digital digital or connected media. Um, but yeah, in answer to your question, I think everything everything that I've done as a so-called careerist has been based on my travels. Awesome. So I need to talk about some some blockchain and crypto stuff. Uh, I could yeah. talk to you all day about traveling and stuff like. <laughs> I need to ask you about the Sienna Network, uh, what yeah. that's all about. You know, what's your role there, and then I'll ask you about some of your writing too. No, sure. Uh, yeah, so I separated from my wife in during lockdown. I mean, how difficult do you want to make it? You know what I mean. Uh, and it was a very tough, tough decoupling after you know, 22 years or so. Uh, but it was a very benign and kind 50-50 divorce. Our son was 17, is now 18, and a wonderful human. And that's down to my, my ex-wife and me. Uh, but things were tough, you know. Like, I'd lost about 150K of consultancy. There were obviously going to be no more Kim Kardashian gigs or all the other... I mean, I've interviewed Steve Wozniak on stage a couple of times in Berlin and and Vienna. So, you know, I, I'd lost income and I was slightly catastrophist about it because I thought that this was at my age. It could also be, you know, it could be a, a, a hard fork to, uh, to cite 
you know, crypto nomenclature of like this could be it for me. You know, when when will I work again? And also was in a deteriorating marriage as well, which exacerbated all of that stuff. You know what I mean? So I went and did some PR for a bit. You know, I lived in a, I lived in the woods for a couple of months. Not like you know, what was that guy Walden? Was it um, what was his name Emerson? Uh, and kind of got my head together. Then I moved to a nice flat in Brighton where I live now. Um, and you know things were pretty rough for six months. You know, managing a relationship with my boy, which just worked out perfectly, thank God. To the extent that my divorce lawyer gave me a refund because she said she saw all types of horrors in her job, and it was nice to see two people to you know separate so benignly. Although it's still difficult, you know. So while all that was going on, you know the, the yin and the yang and the karma and all the stuff that I learned from travelling. Um, Someone walked into my life who I'd known for a couple of years. Uh, you know, we'd spoken at events. You know, really, 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 really lovely guy. Uh, he said, we're setting up this thing called Sienna Network, uh, and we want you involved at any cost. And this was, to me, like honeyed words of magic, you know, after all the stress that I've been going through. Um, and, and interestingly, you know, uh, one of the other co-founders um, was a guy who I'd met at the U.S. Embassy in Stockholm at an event a few years ago and said, listen, mate, go over there and chat to those girls. They obviously like you. Good-looking boy. I can't do it. I'm married. Um, and he had a successful evening, let's just say that. And he was another guy that was one of the co-founders. So I sent them a questionnaire that I might work with them. You know, Mob76, which I don't really focus on as much at the moment as my consultancy. Um, sent them a questionnaire as I normally do. Uh, and if the questions come back are rubbish, I don't work with that company. So, you know, if they put effort into it, there's, you know, we go to the next stage. Um, and it was really interesting. We might make an NFT out of this. Actually, um, we were trying to raise between five hundred and seven hundred grand. You know, which should be nice. You know, um, we raised eleven point two million, ten million in a private sale, one point two in a, a public sale. So, and I've, you know, I've done VC work where this dance of death takes months for things to be done. And people were paying within like 24 hours, half a million quid, you know, via fiat, crypto, whatever. We just put it in a stable coin. Um, and basically, I think the hunger and the sweet spot and the, and the answer to your question is that, you know, if I, even if, if you've got a US bank account, I've got a UK bank account, I said, you owe $500. It's quite easy to send it to you, right? You know, I, I said, take it from my bank account. It goes to yours. It's done slowly, but it's done safely. But the problem for us is about the openness of, of blockchain. You know, it's the first iteration of something that's going to change the world. Nothing's perfect, you know. But if I sent you $500 in crypto through whatever exchange it was, you could see every single transaction that I had ever made in crypto, and I could see every single transaction that you'd made in crypto. Like I could see 20 years of your bank account history, and you could see 20 years of mine. Not only is this non-privacy, you know, bearing in mind we'd probably be gentlemen about it and we wouldn't look, right? You know what I mean? But it's it's a fundamental right to have privacy. And we're, and we're not talking anonymity here. It's a very, very big difference because of the tropes that are thrown at Bitcoin and, you know, 
and uh, other cryptocurrencies as being a place of you know secrecy where people you know sell drugs sell guns all of that nonsense absolutely hackneyed thing to say um so there's that then there's the other problem of, of public blockchains front running so because everyone can see what transactions you're making other bad actors could hijack your trade uh, it's, a, it's a thing called front running um and so you lose the trade because someone pays a higher gas fee or pays a higher premium to to steal that transaction so you know the little guy gets ripped off the big guy could afford the big gas fee you know he's all right he's fine so i think that we're solving that problem number one and we're making transactions sit you know there's a if, if you think of um, if you think of blockchains as like an archipelago of islands in japan or, or or somewhere like that and they all can't really speak to each other but what everyone is trying to do especially cosmos is to link these blockchains together so they kind of talk to each other's the wrong word the wrong phrase but they're connected you know just think of it as a series of bridges between you know low-lying islands and on top of that cosmos you can build other protocols one of which is secret network of which sienna network is based on so we're so we're, we're you know we have a coin you know we have a utility coin a community coin where you know we're like a little bit like a linux you know decisions are made by the community like we're a dao decentralized autonomous organization that's what we've uh, that's what we've become you know we have a software supplier blah 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 uh, and and that's what is going on is that, that people need to have privacy in their transactions they don't want to have secret bitcoin or secret ether to hide money from the tax van or the federal agent they just want to have their crypto transactions and their crypto life private as much as your bank account is private and my bank my bank account is private well allegedly um and that's what we're trying to do and i think we hit the sweet sweet spot of the the, the raise which we weren't expecting to be honest we launched sienna swap uh about a month ago got some great publicity on forbes TechCrunch a couple of times, you know, uh, Coin Market, who I like, uh, and Decrypt, who I really like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we have Sienna Lend, which is going to change everything we think, hopefully, next month. Uh, and we have a roadmap that could be seen on our website, Sienna.network, uh, which shows what we have planned for Q1, Q2, Q3 next year. And I think what it is, is that it, it, the reason that people put so much money in and why the price has gone up from six dollars to 45 dollars you know from the from the public and the private sales is that we're in it long term right we're no pump dump bullshit it's that we really think this is a problem we want to solve the problem and we want our community to solve the problem for our community and other people it's basically web three you know that's basically what we think and none of us have any intention of selling our coins you know as the people that began this and all, all of the other people that are part of the community are not shilling to push the price up i don't believe in that shit. you know what i mean it's just you know it's what is value and how long term you are and we think that we're both great uh that's awesome um 
I I have a follow up. Um, just 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 at high level. Um, what do you think the future of privacy coins are? Uh, there's been a lot of you know uh, discussion about them not you know in, in attacks on not like secular attacks against like coins like Monero, like privacy coins aren't good. Like, what is your long term outlook on what the privacy coins um, space looks like? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Monero. I'm, I'm, I'm just about to write up a press release about you know what we're trying to do with Sienna and Monero. Is a lot of this is reputational, right? You know, it goes back to my point about anonymity and privacy. This is a very defining, delineating thing. Is that what we're doing and other privacy coins? Not maybe not to the extent that we are in all humility. Um, is to create an environment where the environment that exists with traditional finance where you have privacy, you know, the regulation that's going on with FATF, you know, you have to be signed up to them. I think it's uh, an acronym called MECA that is going forward to the EU to become law next year. You know, one of our advisors is very privy to the writing of that document. You know, we, we have the most amazing advisors in the world. Uh, people I, I, learn from every minute and i don't think i'll ever learn enough to, from them so we we to, you know it's not the, the the right phrase but in mind i was moaning about the you know the stigma of front running but you know we're kind of front running regulation that we kind of know what's down that we know what's down the track there's going to be probably attacks on privacy coins uh because they not all of them are the same right you know there's probably we, we actually probably know that there's Going to be regulation uh, coming around the corner. Uh, there are, you know, there are three territories in the world really when it comes to this. It's, you know, I mean, Africa will hopefully catch up because I love Africa. Um, but you know, the US is pretty hot below behind in regulation. Asia is weird. China with regulation. You know, I'd say that Vietnam is probably the smartest country out there for the way that it's dealing with crypto and regulation and on what's around the corner. I mean, it could go terribly wrong. You know, it, it, it really could go terribly wrong that, you know, privacy coins are shut down or there's a, you know, a man, mandate that sweeps in from the US or from anywhere else. But I think that if the document that I, the documents that I've seen that are being written for the EU and regulation, I, I think that they are smart enough to know the difference between good and bad. So my prediction for the future is is bright there will be humps along the way there will probably be shit to pay for bad coins shit coins you know bad bad actor coins but ultimately i think that it's a very very positive future and it's fundamental to the success of crypto being adopted mainstream sounds right to me sounds good um so you are in addition to um, evangelist, evangelist, evangelist with yeah. the Sienna Network. Um, yeah. Look, my tongue got tied up there. So, um, you are also a journalist, right? You. I'd say I'd say an ex-journalist actually. Um, I've, I I I started journalism again in India when uh, UK broadsheet the Telegraph. I used to write um, a weekly newsletter about the games in the gaming industry. Get not game not gambling games. Uh, called Monty's Gamers Game Gaming and Wireless Outlook, and this was based on a, an old, you know, print gambling magazine about horses. 
uh, that I happened to have on my desk at the time. I just named it when I was working for a company called Babel Media. And it was supposed to be, you know, a roundup of the week's event, you know, in the early days of the internet, you know, with a four or 500 word cheeky editorial about what Vodafone would do with games or whatever. Transferred that over to Monty's Indian Outlook when I lived in India. Was approached by the Telegraph uh, to send them stories about India, which was a dream. Uh, I wrote for the FT some travel pieces about uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, I was spiked by the Sunday Times, which was a great personal failure when I wrote a piece about Kashmir. Um, but, I, but, you know, I was writing. I was writing when I was away. And when I came back, I thought I'd swap the Telegraph column over from uh, India to technology. And then it kind of mushroomed from there, and I just collected publications. So I was a Forbes uh, contributor for about four years, but disillusioned by their clickbait attitude, to be fair. Uh, and then I went on to write for MIT Tech Review, Newsweek, The Independent. I mean, God, I can't, just about everybody, right? Time. Well, I don't actually haven't written for The Times of uh, London, uh, but just about everybody else. Um, and, and, you know, these things led to invitations to conferences. And that kind of led to a new career. You know, you know, you know what I mean? And then I just got bored of the inbound, the presumption that I would write about their company because they thought it was brilliant and I might th think the same, when usually I thought it was the opposite. Um, the lack of appreciation of being a tech journalist was another thing. It's like, you know, no one does this for money, right? It's like, it's for love, for words. But you know what? It would be nice to be thanked a few times, you know? You write about a company when they're, when they're a startup and then they get 50 million Series C. Uh, no one looks back to see how that happened. You know, if I hadn't written that piece for TechCrunch or if I hadn't written that piece for The Telegraph, this probably wouldn't have happened to you. It's probably more important and then you get in seed capital, you know, the writings that I've done for lots of companies. And those exits of the companies that I've worked for, have, you know, have written about, sorry. Um, you know, that's over a billion dollars, you know, at least a billion dollars. Uh, did anyone ever buy me a Harley Davidson or, you know, buy me a watch or I'll take you a couple, I've got a couple of lunch dates. But, but I carried on with journalism because I believe in journalism. It's no, you know, it's no big leap to see the world that we're living in today has happened because journalism is so poorly paid uh, and really good writers have gone elsewhere. They're usually poached by PR companies as I was in the early days, you know, and I came back to it in a slightly weird way. But, you know, if you don't have a, you know, fourth estate protecting us from the judiciary or the government, you know, this journalism is, is like a fourth commandment. And as it's been, you know, eroded away, I, I, I lost, I got very disillusioned with it. You know, I was getting stupid money for, for really high quality articles. Then I got taken on by The Economist, who still pay really well. And that's probably my greatest achievement as a, a so-called journalist, is writing, writing for The Economist, which I still do occasionally. And I still write for the BBC occasionally. Uh, and I write a column for Crypto AM or City AFM in London, which is a great, 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 uh, great thing to do for a London newspaper. I think the Evening Standard is probably the older, the older publication. It's been in London for 200 years. 
And I think they're, you know, I think the people who set that, who are working there and set up the Forbes Contributors Network. So there's exciting stuff to come from them, I think. But Crypto M, James Water is a, is a great character, a great person, you know what I mean? That's a really good WhatsApp groups, signal groups, uh, you know, where, where we get to grips with things, great conferences, uh, and a great community. You know, so I will keep on writing for Crypto AM until they tell me to go away, and I will contribute to the BBC and the Economist until the day I die, if uh, if, if still wanted. Um, but I kind of think that I'm a writer, not a journalist. You, you know, I'm more I'm more excited about the idea of going to, you know, Ethiopia in the next month or two to write about the war that's gradually, you know, converging on Addis Ababa or where I was ten years ago. Or, or going to Kashmir, or going to the Sinai. Uh, now that my son is 18, now that he's going to university, now that he's got his grades, I can probably take a few more risks, you know, because he's independent, a lovely, lovely boy. But I need a bit more of that, right? I need, you know, I, in my head, I'm a war, war travel journalist. Uh, and I haven't done that because I've been focusing on being a father. Uh, but, you know, the, uh, the empty nest syndrome, uh, number one doesn't apply to me because you know I, I, I left the family home a year ago. Now I just need to buy a house when the house is sold next month, and that will be my base. And it will be like my dispatch riding days, a base to go and see the world again. And you know, sometimes the, the, the best and the worst of the world is when there are transformative things happening, Ethiopia, especially, I think, also Sudan, Libya, you know, all of these places. Uh, I need to get I need to get my mo mojo back to those type of things. Uh, then I will be a journalist. You know what I mean? Then I will be a journalist. But I'm writing a book at the moment. You know, that's all part of it. Um, I want to hang exclusively with Sienna for, uh, you know, as long as it takes. But I am going to try and have a kind of, you know, a, a more of a digital nomad life. I mean, I, 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 you know, in 2008, I was a digital nomad working in Indian, you know, internet cafes, getting bitten by mosquitoes. So I, so walking around with a laptop and pretty much being able to, you know, write and send anywhere in the world in 2021, 22 is, is anyone can do it. You know what I mean? Incredible. I, uh, yeah, I'm a writer too. Um, my kids are 12 and eight, so I'll have another decade before I can do travel writing. Um, but, um, <laughs> well, you know, I'll see you on the road, bro. <laughs> I'll see you on the road then. Um, so I want to ask you one more, well, two more things, but um, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning. You were a Bollywood actor. Ah. Um, I always had an interest in Bollywood. So could you tell us how that happened and what lessons you learned there that have applied, that could apply to the NFT realm today? <laughs> Why were you into Bollywood? I studied film, college, undergrad. Oh, so, yeah. Good for you. Um, yeah, well, I suppose uh, the difference between Brighton and London is an hour, well, allegedly, it's always longer than that, an hour train journey. The, uh, the difference between uh, Mumbai and Goa, which is where I lived, is about an hour by plane. So you'd have... You know, things like people in this instance, casting agencies would come down for a weekend, right? You know, 
Skull is a great place. Uh, and, you know, you'd get celebrities that come down at Christmas and all this type of things, you know. So my, my mate, he had a, old, a, a boutique hotel he was doing up. Uh, and he called me up and he said, do you want to be a dead actor in the Bollywood film? And when I'd been in India 20 years previously, I'd gone to, oh, what's, I can't remember, remember the name of the, Hampi. I'd been to Hampi for a couple of days, which is an amazing place, you know, in the desert, all the sculptures, uh, ancient civilization. And my two mates had stayed in uh, Mumbai. They'd come, someone had come to the, you know, the, the backpackers uh, hostel and they were in a film about cricket. You know, and this and this film, what was India's only ever uh, nominated in the India's in Indian director's only ever uh, Oscar nominated film, you know, foreign foreign film. So Ashutosh Gorakha was his name, uh, and they were looking for dead soldiers. And I said, James, I would I would die to be a soldier. So it's a long story. I had to do some screen tests in the middle of going on a Saturday morning. Uh, I was absolutely hapless hopeless and useless uh, acting because I'd never done it before uh, but this guy he studied in London he seemed to like me uh, it, it's, it's a really good story actually but it's long uh, so anyway I went back to the house ah oh, mate I knew my opportunity was coming and won't be in this film and then I didn't hear anything for three months you know that was it uh, and then I got a call about half 10 p.m you know past 10 we we lived in a house right yeah you know, in the in the in the forest basically by the by the by the lakes, um, and then my mate said, "Listen, they've just invited me to the set and they want you to come as well." I said, "All right, brilliant. What now?" And he said, "Well, yeah." I said, "Well, it's a bit late." He's going, "Mate, come with me. I'll see you there. It's important." I went, "All right, I'll chill out." So this kind of almost drunk taxi driver arrives. We drive 80 kilometers to the border with Maharashtra from Goa uh, to a small town, which is like an Indian festival because the Bollywood people are in town. Uh, what, what? All of these people are crowded around to get glimpses of the heroes. It's like 2.33 a.m. I get out of the taxi and then the director, director uh, Gawarika, he comes up to me personally and gives me a hug. And says, "Come in, Monty. Come in." So, what's going on here? So, basically, I think because I'm quite tall, you know, six good shoulders, whatever. Uh, he, he took me into a, you know, a, into a, into a caravan, and said, "We'd like you to have a bigger part in the film." I said, "Well, okay." He says, "We want to fit you out in a uniform." The film was about a bunch of revolutionaries in the in the 30s that decide to bomb the British club. You know, in what is now Bangladesh, you know, East Pakistan. Uh, and they wanted me to uh, be the leader of, uh, a, you know, of my, my, I don't know, brigade, I suppose you'd call it, troops, uh, where we corner the guerrillas, all these young kids that have rebelled, uh, and then we attack the house. Uh, the things that happened, man, I cannot tell you. I was the explosives were put in a tree in front of me. Don't look at the tree, Monty. Just fire around the side of it all. I had to pistol whip a woman when she opened the door. Uh, I had to, you know, I had to climb on a roof three months later uh, to shoot dead the guerrilla leader. My foot went through the Portuguese slate uh, of this villa twice. Thought I was going to die. 
got cheered off set because it meant everyone could have a day off and go back to Mumbai. Uh, and then I did another film when I was a Russian drug dealer where I had to dress uh, and go to raves or, you know, Bollywood raves in the woods and just stand there and pretend to sell drugs. Um, and I'd been to these raves 20 years before in the 90s. I mean, it was it was mad. You know, I was, you know, in forests with day glow trees and it <laughs> just came so naturally. Not the drug dealing, obviously. Um, but, you know, just it, it was it was insane. I did this 20 years ago for React for real. And now I'm in the woods, you know, the forest with day glow paint and very beautiful girls in bikinis dancing around me because I'm a drug dealer. I mean, it was outrageous. Um, and then and then in that film, I actually get a death scene as well, where I question the leader of uh, uh, the leader of uh, the, uh, the drug dealers, who is actually the, the, the reason I'm saying this, that uh, I was in two films with this guy, and he's the son of the Big B. I'm sure you know who that is, Amitaj Bachchan. Uh, so I met the Big B in London. Uh, a very imperial man, you know. I mean, we we did the selfie, but no touching, no touching. Uh, and I said I've been in two films with his son, and you know, and I wrote a piece up about what he was doing with uh, with new technology. He as a, a Bollywood actor, and uh, and last week um, he joined NFTs. You know what I mean? Uh, the guy is so famous in India; he's more famous than any any cricketer. He's like basically a president, uh, and you know, he's selling off stuff. The, you know the, you know nfts or let's just say digital collectibles of some of his work his dad was a, a, an amazing poet as well you know so he's kind of a, doing nft of, of his dad's work uh and when the when the big b begins you know the big b followers you know people follow him and i think it's like um what's his name salman khan uh, uh rsk what's his name I think they're jumping on the back bandwagon. Cricketers are starting to do it. There's a new cricketing superstar called Rispar Pant. It's a bit like uh, Ian Botham in his day. That's one reference point that, that your audience might miss. Uh, but, you know, like a Ben Stokes type of character. He's getting into NFTs. It's a natural place. You know, the craze for Bollywood, you know, even from, you know, Americans studying at film school uh, to, to the people that live in India. That it's going to be massive, absolutely massive, and I would say it would it would probably be the centre of NFTs in the, in the next year or so. Awesome. Um, so I have one last question. Actually, I have two last questions. Um, we have a few minutes left. Um, so I'll ask the high level one. Um, your background is is a lot of people say to me, and I interviewed somebody last week, and he said, "Jamil, I'm not that smart." Um, and I said to him, you have street smarts. Street smarts are far more important than book smarts um, in this space. Um, so I wanted to get your take on what you think about that. Well, I'd say, it's, well, it's a bit of both, isn't it? You know, it's like the grass is always greener. I really wish I'd gone to university because I can't cook. You know what I mean? That's where people learn to cook. Um, I wish that I had had that full education. I wish that I'd been more mature at that time to have listened to someone, because I never listened to anyone. I've started to listen to people nowadays, uh, which is clearly a fail. Uh, street Start, Book Smart. I mean, I, I've just been discussing War and Peace with my mate who, who's just read it. I've just read Rationality by Stephen Pinker. Uh, I actually understand rationality a lot better than I did before. 
I mean, I, I've read everything, you know, I've read Dostoyevsky, everything by Dostoyevsky, Albert Camus might actually go to Algeria instead of uh, the Sinai in January because of my love for Albert Camus. Uh, so I don't think, you had, you had the book smart to the street smart, right? You have, you have, a, you have an interesting individual. If you add the court jester to a mixture of those two, there's a book by Herman Hess that everyone used to read in India uh, called Journey to the East. And it's about two people that are invited on a march through history with Socrates, all these just characters marching the greatest of intellects to the East or whatever. Uh, and there's a digital, not digital, it's what it should be a digital jester, a court jester that kind of lurks around, jumps around, you know what I mean? And they think he's a bit of a dick. Um, but everybody tells the court jester their secrets because they don't think he's a threat. You know, so I, it's quite difficult to get away from being a court jester because I have played that role for many years as I kind of try, try to catch up with my peers uh, uh, in digital and internet and now crypto. Is that the, the, a mixture of street smart, street smart, book smart, and being a digital jester? or a court jester where you're no threat to anybody, you know, and you get all that information they give to you freely because they don't think you're a threat. Uh, it's a very, 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 very powerful potion. It's a powerful brew uh, at certain times in your life. I think getting away from the court jester and being, you know, I want you to know me for being book smart, not street smart, as opposed to you thinking I'm a hustler or oh, I'm street smart. That's quite a big pivot. But it's one I'm going through at the moment and one that I am enjoying making. Awesome. So I want to, I want, I mean, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been an amazing discussion uh, for me. I'm fascinated by your background and what you do. Um, one last, this the final question is this How can people find out more information about you, about what you do? How can they reach out to you if they want? How, how can they do that? Well, uh, there's a band called Mumford and Sons that ruined my life because my name is spelt differently. And I look to my left and I, I have a poster in my flat that says, Stop Mumford and Sons, because uh, their name is M U M and my name is M U N. M for Mother, U for Unicorn, N for, Nove M N for November. So it's Monty with a Y, Monty Mumford. Easy to find on LinkedIn, uh, verified on Twitter. You know, Facebook, all of that. It's, it's a quite a unique name. There's some bloke in Tennessee, I think that's the same name, but there's nobody else. So I'm very easy to find. Uh, Sienna Network is Sienna with two N's. Sienna, home of cryptography in uh, the city of Sienna in the 14th century. That's why we named the company that. Sienna, two N's, dot network. Uh, we have a great Telegram group. Uh, we have a great Twitter group, about 30,000 followers on each. Uh, and, you know, I've got my own Wikipedia page. So that should be easy enough. Great. Thank you very much for your time today. Jamil, it was a real pleasure. Stay in touch. Uh, anything I do for you, let me know.